want to greet each one this evening in the precious name of Jesus and count it a privilege to be here. We can often say that, those two things, talk about greeting everybody in the precious name of Jesus and saying that it's good to be here. Sometimes we mean it, and sometimes we don't. But it really is a privilege to be able to be here and to worship and to, even this afternoon in the long extended sitting session we had, planning and meeting, how many countries in the world would be glad if they could meet for that many hours, unmolested by the authorities, to plan to further the kingdom of God? It's a blessing to be here, and I hope each one feels that way. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I'd like to read several verses. In the beginning, the subject that has been assigned to me is seeing God through nature. <clears throat> this evening, I'd like to talk a little bit about the greatness of God. How great is God? How large is God? We really need to grasp that concept. In order to be faithful leaders, in order to be intentional leaders, we have to realize that we are not in this ourselves, and we have the backing of all the power that we need. We're going to look a little bit at Romans chapter 1, read verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God had showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that were made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. There are several things i like to look at in the scripture here, and I, and I think this pretty well sums up man's condition. We have a tendency to look at something, and we have a tendency to say, wow, but man at its heart, we know that the heart is desperately wicked, does not really want to worship a God, because that would say we have to humble ourselves, and, and self does not like to be humbled. The Spirit has to draw us in order to humble us to worship God, and so if we look at the world around us, I think that's pretty well where we are today, is people look at nature and they can see that there is an awesomeness there. They can see that there's a power there. God is revealing himself, but they're taking that and they're twisting it. You know, it says that they knew God and just knowing God is not enough. We all can know that there's a God, but we need to serve him and we need to be children of his. So today we have a lot of people that know there's a God. We have people that don't know there's a God, but the people that I'm talking about, the people that know there is a God but deny it. They say, no, I choose just not to believe that or I choose not to worship the God. And it says it became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. God will allow those people to go their own way. God reveals himself through nature, but nature cannot put us into direct contact with God. It is impossible. And therefore, we have a lot of people, and it, it, it pains me, and I think it's coming closer and closer to our conservative congregations, that we have people that are bringing nature and the worship of nature and mysticism and things like that into the gospel setting. They want to incorporate that in the worship or in glorifying God. And in doing so, they're worshiping nature more than they are the Creator and the Lord of nature. God did not make nature for us to worship. He made nature to point us towards him. It's pretty plain there in Romans. It's just the way it is. So we need to worship God, not nature. Nobody in here didn't know that, right? That's not new. But I think because of the pressures that are around us, it's important that we know. You don't have to turn to it, but Genesis chapter 1. What are the first five words in the Bible? In the beginning... God created. And those are some of the most important words in the whole Bible. Because I think what we view the rest of the Bible as hinges a lot on how we look at those words and how, what they mean to us. Do I literally believe that in the beginning God created? Or don't I? Because when we cast into doubt God's spoken creation, we cast into doubt the rest of the Scriptures we start to go down that road from the very first five words in the Bible, we start to say, well, isn't that what Satan said to Eve? Did God really say that? 
Did he really mean that? That he really created everything? And, and I, maybe I'm just more aware of it, but to me it seems like in the past couple of years there's been much more of a push to reconcile creationism and evolution. Oh, well, you know, it, it wasn't probably the seven literal days. You know, those were just figuratively speaking. You know, we had up here in our business meeting a thousand years is a day. And, you know, it just, yeah, well, no. In the beginning, God created in six days, and the seventh day he rested. So going on, and tonight I'd like to look a little bit about the universe and the power of God. So why did God create the universe? Why did he create it? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I believe God created a lot of nature, but especially the universe, to show his power and glory. The extent of the known universe is 93 billion light years across. I'll just tell you that's far. That's really, really far. Light travels 186,000 miles per second, I think 5.87 trillion miles in a year. And you do that for 93 billion years, and you go far. This sphere contains approximately 2 trillion galaxies. How many stars are in a galaxy? Anywhere from 100 to 300 billion stars are in our Milky Way galaxy. It's just awesome that God made all of that. He spoke and boom, it was. One of the amazing things that I just discovered this summer, and you probably have run, some of you run across, but if you take a grain of sand and you put it on your fingertip and you hold it up, the amount of sky, the patch of sky that that grain of sand covers contains 10,000 galaxies. Not stars, galaxies. Each probably having between 100 and 300 billion stars, possibly 100 billion, planet, or 100, you know, billion planets. It's mind-blowing. But this is what God made. This is creation that God made. And we could go on and on. We think the stars or the sun is pretty big. It takes light goes around the earth a little bit more than seven times in one second. It travels around the sun in 14 and a half seconds. And if you look at the largest star that they discovered, UI Scuddy is the largest star in volume, it would take light seven hours to travel around the star. Is that power? That God spoke and this happened? We can't even grasp any of those powers. But now just think of this. When God created man, what did he say? After all the animals and everything, he made all these stars in this huge universe that we cannot even start to grasp. And he made us and he said, it's very good. And then he sent his son to die for me and for you. We are worth so much more than everything that is out there. The power of God is awesome. If we look at a small scale in creation and, and, and nature that God made, this was a new one for me. I enjoy reading, and I never run across this. There's a type of bacteria called a flagellum, I believe, bacteria. It is approximately two micrometers across, for those of us that are in the normal system south of the border. That is, well, micrometer is one millionth of a meter, which is a little bit longer than a yard. And uh, it has a little motor that drives a little spiral tail that propels this bacteria. There's oodles of these ba different types of these bacteria. And this motor actually runs at six to 16,000 RPMs. And it can reverse directions and snap of a finger. And this propels this bacteria up to 60 cell lengths per second. Just to put it in perspective, a cheetah at top speed does approximately 25 body lengths in a second. God made the universe, and he made these little tiny motors that we can't even see to do things. Just so you'll sleep better tonight, there are between 100,000 and 10 million dust mites on the pillow that you're sleeping on. <laughs> God made them. Why? I don't know. But what I'm getting across is that God made everything from the very smallest thing to the very largest thing in six days. And so, okay, we all know that, but what about that? But why do I sometimes operate under the assumption that I don't have the power or the indwelling to fulfill whatever problem. Sometimes I look at things as problems. I shouldn't. But we look at them and we say, oh, it's, it's such a, oh, I, I can't do it. We get like Moses or we get, we get. But this God has sent his spirit, part of the Godhead, to live inside of me and to live inside of you. John chapter 1, read the first four verses. Very familiar scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
And the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This life here is the most important thing. You know, Jesus was in the beginning with God. Jesus was the creator with the Godhead of everything. It says there was nothing made that was made. There was, there's nothing existing that God did not make. Space and time are just something that was created for us to relay things. God is all-powerful. We have that life and the light of men indwelling in us. So man had to create something and enter evolution to say that I am not constrained to worship this God. Because if we say that there is someone that always was, always will be, created everything, and therefore I'm beholden to that person, to that God, to that deity, whatever it may be, I am beholden to that because he made me. And we know that God did. And so therefore people take evolution and say, well, they want to take God out of the picture and say, well, no, I'm not beholden to anybody because it just happened. I'm just a random chance dust. We're just all sort of, and we've come to an agreement to operate on certain levels and but there's no moral absolutes. Society doesn't function that way very well. You know, we're not in a spiritual battle alone. We are backed by God. We are backed by His Spirit. Let's not forget about that. That, that power in verse 4 is what changes our lives. You know, sometimes we get tired. I'll borrow from Brother Paul wherever he's sitting this evening. We get tired in the work, but not of the work. Let's remember when we tire that we have the power of God and we can rely on that. How we serve God and how much effort we put into Him, into serving God, relates directly on our view of Him and of the power of His indwelling Spirit and how much that we owe Him. This evening, I owe Him everything. You owe Him everything. He created everything. Without God, I would not be here, and you would not be here. Let's put that power to use, not for our own honor and glory, but to glorify the kingdom and to further the kingdom. Lord bless. I, too, want to greet you once again in the precious name of Jesus. Stand up for Jesus. You know, the theme, I'll have to look again because I can't remember. Exercising proactive and intentional leadership. Have you ever seen a leader that cannot stand? If the leader isn't standing, the followers don't know where to go or don't know what to stand up for. I think that song talked a lot about or had alluded to Ephesians chapter 6, and where it says, having done all to stand, we have to take a stand. And that's what leaders are for. I think everyone needs to take a stand, but especially us as leaders need to take a stand. Today I'd like to talk about something that is standing. Turn to Psalm chapter 1, a very familiar psalm, and we're going to talk about a tree. And look a little bit on what the tree is and how that we should be like a tree and what lessons we can take from it. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. <clears throat> so we're all familiar with trees. There are trees all around us. In most places that you go, there are some places obviously that they aren't, but we have products from trees that are all around us. So it's not something new to think of a tree. But it's interesting, this this. If you look at trees, and I looked a little bit at statistics, and 31% of the earth is forested. Uh, I didn't really know how much to expect, but 31%, and there are approximately, I don't know who counted, but they say there's about 3 trillion trees on the earth. 
And it says that there are approximately 23,000 species of trees. That's amazing. I can't even tell quite all the ones around home what they are for sure sometimes, especially just looking at the bark. So there's, there's a lot of trees on the earth. <clears throat> trees are also probably the oldest living thing that is on the earth. They have, some trees have been around for a long time. There are trees living today that they believe that were alive at the time of Christ. And that's just amazing that they could survive for that long on the earth. And not just, you know, the trees. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 6, it talks about the lilies of the field. And it says that they toil not, neither do they spin. You know, and that they don't take any thought for tomorrow. Um, and why that we take thought for our raiment? Why are we so concerned about tomorrow? Why are we so concerned about what happens to me after this? I know it probably wouldn't be very wise if we wouldn't have any plans what's going to happen to us tomorrow. But that being said, sometimes I think we have a disproportionate emphasis put on what is happening after now, enough that we sometimes take our emphasis off standing when we should stand. There are approximately 369,000 or somewhere short of 400,000 species of flowering plants. Let that soak in a little bit. And I looked a little bit about species on earth, and there, it was such a confliction of numbers that I really didn't even care to throw any out. But there are some estimates that, that man has only discovered very, very small percentage of the number of species, that being plants, animal, bacteria, everything that's on the earth, that's actually out there. And somehow we still think we know a lot. And we still have that much more to understand. <clears throat> there are about 60,000 animals, species, that they've discovered on the earth. 950,000 insect species. It just, it's, it's really amazing what God has created. So, back to the trees. How should we be like a tree? In verse 3, it says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So, what is the significance in being planted? And I guess, I take from that, if, if when we are converted, when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we are taken out of a barren desert, a place where there is nothing but death, nothing but bad things, and we are taken and we are planted, we are moved to a place where we have access 24-7 to the streams of living water. We are actually removed, our spiritual life, our spirit inside of us is changed. Our heart is changed. It is, our stony heart is taken out and it has put a soft heart that is pliable, that can absorb things, and we are planted like a tree beside the rivers of waters. And, and I think sometimes I think I fail to really appreciate what I have been taken from, where I've been transplanted from. And, and I'm afraid that a lot of times, and it was a little bit alluded to here as far as being first generation Anabaptist, and that those of us that have grown up in the church and have heard the gospel and have, have heard it expressed from little on up, have went to Sunday school, have, have heard all the right things, went to a Christian school, homeschool, whatever, we're taught that sometimes have a lack or we don't quite grasp what we've really been delivered from. Because we were actually taken from the middle of the Sahara Desert or whatever desert you want to pick, in the middle of nowhere where sure death awaited us, and taken from there and taken to the, the most beautiful, the, the, the most the place that is the best for my spirit to grow, for my body to glorify God here on this earth, and for me to grow more like Christ. We have been given everything that we need. We have been delivered. We have been planted by the living waters. You know, it, and it, the living waters, you know, God's Word. In other countries, there are places that they just cry out for Bibles. I know Brother Furman in our church just He's with the Gideons, and he said that they, are, they have four million requests for Bibles that they are not able to fill because of lack of funds. These are people that would just love to have a copy of that living water. And yet I have how many copies laying around, and I have how much time in a day, and how much time do I actually spend searching and carrying that living water into my heart and taking it in. So when we're removed, 
We are a seed, and it sprouts. A seed sprouts. It sends down a root. It sends up buds. It matures. It grows. A tree grows where it's planted. Sometimes we don't like to hear that, do we? Because, you know, I mean, it, we would like to be planted somewhere else. You know, we, we would like to just, surely I could just uproot and I could go over here. And sometimes God calls us to do that. And sometimes God's will is pretty broad. Because, but it has to be aligned with the Bible. But if God calls us someplace and He plants us there, we need to grow and we need to bloom where we're planted. We can't pine away and we can't stand there like a tree and say, well, you know, I'll just make the best of it where I'm at. No, we need to grow where I'm planted. Am I satisfied where God has planted me? If I'm not, if I say that, no, 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 God made a mistake in where I'm planted, then I'm saying that I know more than God knows. That's really what I'm saying. Because, you know, if God would really know what I know, he would have chosen to plant me over here instead of over here. And, oh, I wouldn't question God. Well, that's what I'm doing when I do that. Can I grow where I'm planted? God has planted each one of his children beside living waters. If we are in God's will and we are living according to the Bible, we have access to that living water. He will not put us in any place where we do not have access to everything that we need for growth and for production of good fruit. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say if you feel like it or if you have that in your head. It says he will through Christ Jesus. It's done. It's there. I think I remember in school there was a track going around that had it looked like a check and that was written on it. And I think I still have one somewhere. And that always sort of stuck in my mind. God has all the riches. We just need to draw on the account. It's there for us. The other thing that I think is important that we as trees, and sometimes we get forests, right? We have a lot of trees that are planted close to each other, and so sometimes it seems like, at least to people, we get to competing. We get to elbowing the other trees, and we say, get away from my water. You know, I, I need this, this, I need that. There's plenty of water for all. There's plenty of living water for each tree that is out there. God will provide for each one. We are not to compete. We are also not to be like a walnut tree. I'll probably butcher this word. I didn't look up how to pronounce it, but I think it's called as J-U-G-L-O-N. Juglone. Juglone. They produce it, and it hinders the growth. A black walnut produces it. There's several other trees, too, but you can really see it in the black walnuts. And it's produced, and it's into the ground, and it keeps other plants from growing. It actually poisons the ground to other plants. There's a lot of plants that will not grow around a black walnut. Is that what I do sometimes? Do I crowd out others? Or do I contribute to their growth? Do I try to become a big beech tree? A beech has a big crown, and they'll spread out. And if you look in the woods, if you walk along in a beech tree, and you, there's not much that grows underneath the beech tree. Because it sucks up all the water, it shades out everything else, and it just takes over. Or do I promote the growth of the other people that are around me? Do I make it good for them to grow beside me? Do I make things available to them? This is not a competition. Do I give of myself? Yeah, I think sometimes in our gardens and, and farmers, they plant a cover crop, rye grain, and it fixates nitrogen. It gives of itself. Then it, when it dies, it's tilled under, and it becomes compost. And it adds to the soil for the benefit of the other things that will grow. I know it doesn't have much choice. It's, we put it in there, we plow it down, and spray it. It's, it's just, you know. But we have a choice. We can let God use us to benefit others. We can, we can, we're trees that can uproot ourselves. We can move. We can move away from where God planted us. But am I content to be where God wants me to be? Do I give of myself? Trees spread out their roots to take in nutrients. You know, and, and trees grow towards water. Do I grow towards the living water? What are my roots reaching toward? Living water or damaging water? You know, a tree is affected by what it takes in. I don't know if you've ever seen our area. There's, a, there's some old, a lot of old land that was strip-mined. And so you have a lot of acidic soil, and, and there's water that comes out of there that is pretty well, it's, it's sterile. You can't, fish can't live in the ponds. 
Um, it's, it gets it's sort of nasty looking, and not much grows around it. And pretty well the only thing that grows on that where it's really bad is sort of trashy trees. It just supports little stunted, not really anything that's worthwhile as far as timber. And it's because of that water and because of that soil and what it is taking in is not able to support what we would say would be profitable trees. So where am I spreading my roots to? You know, there's, there's so many things today that we can choose to spread our roots to. And I think probably most of us here, because we are leaders, we like information. Or I would assume that. Because if anyone that has to share or has to uh, bring a sermon, we, we, we like to bring in information. Where am I getting my information from? We can be very careful that we spread our roots towards the right sources. It's never in history, I don't think, has it been so easy to access information and wrong information. And we need to check everything according to the Word of God. You know, we can find what we want. If we go looking and have a preset opinion, we can find something someplace to corroborate it. That's just the way it is. It doesn't make it right if it's not in here. But be careful where we spread our roots, too. Trees protect from erosion. Am I doing that, or am I contributing to the problem? Am I spreading out my roots, and am I trying to keep intact the practices that I have been brought up in and that I think are doctrinal and applicable to Christian life? Or am I contributing to the erosion problem? Am I rooted enough to keep the soil around me from eroding? You know, trees take in carbon dioxide. There's all sorts of stuff out there with green and fixating carbon and green energy and this and that and whatnot. But trees actually do that. They take in carbon dioxide and they take out oxygen. Now, am I suggesting that we take in trash and that we put out good? I'm not necessarily saying that we go looking for it, but what I'm saying is that we're supposed to return good for evil. So if we take in something or if something is done to us, we need to breathe out oxygen. Oxygen does what? It gives life to almost every organism that is on the earth. Do I do that? Do I take in from the world around me the pollution that's out there, and can I let God change it through me to breathe out blessings on people? The tree, in verse 3, says it brings forth fruit in its season. We have to bring forth fruit. That's not an option. We have to bring forth good fruit. There's a lot of talk, it seems, these days about fruit bearing and how that lack of it really doesn't mean anything because if you're a born-again saint of God, you don't even have to bear good fruit. Well, that's not biblical. That's wrong. A good tree will bring forth good fruit. Just like it says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. What a tree takes in, it will put out. What about the direction that I'm growing as a tree? We know that trees grow towards light. You ever notice that there in the woods, trees grow towards light? So if you have a big canopy and you have a little sapling, they'll sort of go out where they can get light. Am I growing towards the light? Am I growing towards Jesus Christ? Or where is my light source that I'm focused on that I'm growing to? You know, first of all, a tree has to have a good foundation. A tree doesn't just sprout in one day and just shoots up there and it's a big sequoia tree in 20 years. It don't work that way because it would fall over because it's not established. First of all, we need to establish on a foundation. We don't have the time to go into the foundation. We all know what the foundation is, Jesus Christ, that we need to build on as a tree that we need to put our roots into. And then we grow towards the light. Be very careful what you grow towards, because what we grow towards is what we will end up mirroring or what we will become. A tree will have many benefits. You know, it benefits everything that is around it. Animals, birds nest in its branches. Maybe it has a den or coon or possibly large enough that a bear could hibernate it. It, it just it has all these things that it helps the things that are around it. Is that me? <clears throat> A tree, a tree will continue to grow as long as it is alive. And every time I, I think of, of growth or, or change, I think of how Eli Utzi used to say, when you're done changing, you're done. Well, when you're done growing, you're done too. 
Because as long as there's life, we need to be growing in Christ. We need to be, or else we'll be dead and we'll be going the other way. Even when a tree in the fall drops its leaves, they benefit the soil. I guess the challenge I'd like to leave with you this morning is that a tree is not just useful while it's alive. Yes, it grows, it keeps from erosion, it it gives something, it gives fruit, it, it gives shelter, but a tree is useful even after it's dead. You might say, well, what does that have to do with that? Well, are you leaving a legacy? Are you leaving wood, so to speak, that will be useful after you are gone? And are you content to be maybe hidden by drywall? Not all the trees end up as a pulpit or as a nice wooden door. But I think it's very important that we realize that we need to live a legacy. Not that we are honored after we are gone, but that the people that we have influenced, that we leave something with them, that we leave a challenge, that we leave things behind for the next generation. Because, you know, we might be the trees of this generation, some of us a lot taller, a lot older than others, and maybe influence or maybe spread and cover more. But all of us have young saplings that are looking to us as leaders. And we're either going to crowd them out or we're going to help them along. We're either going to bear good fruit or we're not going to bear any fruit or we're going to bear very little fruit. The choices are we are planted by the living waters. Am I willing to grow where I'm planted? Am I willing to make a difference in the world that I was put into? Lord bless you. Well, I want to extend greetings in Jesus' name this evening. Definitely feels different to stand here now than I did when I did before. One thing I thought of, as I studied, and this is not, this is from before, in Proverbs it talks about that the conies are but a feeble folk, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. And if I'm not mistaken, the original word of the coney, a coney is a, is a hyrex, it's like a, a rock badger, they call it, it's like a little... can't say the word that I want to get, but it's a little varmint that lives in the rocks. And the name is means hider. And at times like this, I think of, of the coney is a dumb animal, but it still hides in the rock. Where am I grounded? Where am I hiding this evening? In times like this, what is my foundation? Where do I hide? Am I a smart as the coney. Because if we would not have a foundation this evening, we would be shaken and our house would fall. And I'm glad to see that we have that foundation, we have that rock that we can hide in, we have that rock that we all went to and talked to. Lord Jesus Christ, He's interested in everything that happens. He's there for us. He will protect us. <clears throat> This evening, I've chosen to talk about the ant, and I will switch that around a little bit here. The verses in Proverbs where it says, the very familiar verses, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which having no guide or overseer or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, or gathereth her food in the harvest. You might say that's rather harsh. I'm speaking to a group that I believe is except for some children probably, are born-again Christians, are leaders. What possibly, why possibly would I bring the word sluggard into here? Definition of a sluggard is a lazy or a sluggish person. Well, that's not me, is it? I'm industrious. I work. I give it. I go to work early and I come home late and I... What about... Well, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, it says, Whatever thy hand findeth to do, do with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave 
whither thou goest. This evening we have a stark, vivid reminder that while we have the time we are given now, we are not promised anything more. Today is the day of salvation. We cannot neglect it. We shall not escape. There is no other provision made for us if we neglect that day of salvation. So we need to do everything with all our might. So I'm going to ask the question. I've been challenged by this here. Am I a spiritual sluggard? And I'd like to suggest this evening that if I am not doing what I know to do according to the Scripture with all my might, I'm a spiritual sluggard. Is that strong language? Yes. But the Bible doesn't cut any corners. It doesn't cut us any slack. It speaks to us truthfully. Am I giving it all that I have? We see sometimes, you know, we engage in, in ball games or, or different things, especially as men, we become very competitive and we give it everything that we have. Do I do that in my spiritual life? Am I willing to lay it all on the line for the Lord? Have you ever watched ants push, pull, drag, struggle to get something back to their nest? I had to think of going to school, and probably Daryl and Brian would relate to this. I know on the playground it was dirty and it was dusty, and there were a lot of anthills. And we used to feed them, and I think even sort of claim this colony or that colony there for that one year. And uh, they are quite industrious. And an ant can carry, some types of ants can carry up to 50 times their body weight. That's just amazing how much that they can carry. That's what God designed them to do. So God designed me to do something too. He didn't design me to go out and cut off a piece of leaf and drag it back to my house. He didn't design me necessarily, unless you're an excavator, I guess, to dig in the dirt, but that's secondary. He designed us to reflect Him. He designed us to point other people to Jesus Christ. The ant, with all its intelligence, is doing exactly what God designed it to, with everything that it has. What about me? <clears throat> now I like to switch gears a little bit. I know I said go to the ant thou slugger, but I keep bees. And so I know bees a lot better than I know ants. So I'm going to talk a little bit about bees. They're a lot like ants, except they don't live underground. There's a lot of things that we can take from bees. I'm going to read several verses from Romans chapter 12, where it talks about that we have many, I'm just going to skim over it, I guess. We have many members in one body. We don't have the same office. And we're all familiar, I think, with that scripture. And it had, talks about how the different gifts are given to us and how we are supposed to fulfill what is put in our lap or what is given to us to do. Bees work together. Ants work together. They're not concerned about who gets the glory. Have you ever seen two ants just arguing over something? I've seen it pulling opposite ways. I don't know if they've really got an argument. Oh, no, I want to carry this big piece of whatever chip back to my nest and get the glory for it. No. They work for the good of the hive or the good of the colony. They are not concerned about who gets the glory. And I think too often we see church crashes where there is power struggles in the leadership. Because people are more concerned about who gets the glory than about getting the work of God accomplished. And may that never be us. But we have to be mindful that that is not the way that we operate or we will go down that road. That is self coming out. Bees share, if they find a good nectar source, they go back to the nest and they do a dance that tells the other bees what direction, how far approximately to look for that nectar. If I discover something that is beneficial in my Christian life, am I apt to share it with other people? Am I apt to say, look, this has really blessed me? Or am I apt to sort of keep it all for myself? Even these little stinging bugs don't do that. They share. They give it out. We need to pull other people up and not push other people down. There's two ways of responding to people that we feel are not at the level that they should be. One is we can hurt them and we can push them down or we can come alongside of them and lift them up. 
and help them along in life. Sadly, a lot of times personal recognition becomes a larger goal than the accomplishment of the task. I once knew a guy that was said of him that he would rather argue for 30 minutes over a 20-minute task just so he could do it his way after he was done arguing. Is that me? Even the animals don't do that. Bees chip in and fulfill the tasks they were given to do. There's a lot of different classes of bees. There's, they hatch out and they become nurse bees. And they make wax. And then they graduate into taking out the trash. And then they become guard bees. And then last of all, they become foragers. And in the summer, a bee only lasts for approximately six weeks. They don't live that long. The queen is the only one. The queen can live for up to five years. Generally, they only live two, three years. But they are the only one that is in the hive long term. These workers are working for the good of the hive. A queen can lay up to 1,500 to 2,000 eggs per day, and over a lifetime may lay more than 1 million eggs. Is that intelligent design? An insect that small laying a million eggs over a lifetime? Puts our chickens to shame. Right now they're not laying very well. So what about these bees? They don't, they don't look around the hive and they say, well, you know, I don't really like taking out the trash and dragging dead things out or other bees that have died. I don't like to do that. I think what I want to do is I want to be the queen. And there are workers that actually do that, and then they have egg police that go around and pull the worker eggs out of the cells because they shouldn't do that. And, but for most part, the hive is kept in harmony by the scent that the queen bee gives off. If you take a queen bee out of a hive within two to three hours, every bee in that hive knows the queen is gone just from the scent. And then they go about the process of creating, if they can, if they have young enough larvae or eggs, they can create another queen. If the bees would take their marching orders from a lot of different places, there would be nothing but chaos. And that's the same thing we see in our lives and in the life of the church and in any endeavor that we're involved in. If we have, you know, the old phrase is, what, too many cooks spoil the stew. And we can only take our marching orders from God's Word and from God, from one source, the only true source. We can't take them from the world. We can't take them from different places. Or it will just be chaos. Bees are tireless in their work. Sometimes I wish I could work like a bee. They work, and they work, and they work. It's amazing. A bee will visit up to 2,000 flowers per day. And they will produce approximately one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey over their lifespan. We'd say that was pretty well a failure, wasn't it? No, that's what God made them to do. They're fulfilling the task that God made them to do. And they are dedicated to it. They will, it takes um, approximately 90,000 miles and 2 million flowers for one pound of honey. That's dedication. If a bee stings you, a honeybee, it dies. That's dedication. They will defend the hive with their life. And then they will lose, lose their life after they sting. So, they're tireless. What, what about some Bible verses? You know, it says, pray without ceasing. We should always have a prayerful attitude. What about in, in Psalms, it talks, I believe, about meditating on God's word day and night. It talks about hiding in our heart. In Luke 2.49, where the family came back and found Jesus in the temple, he said, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Am I about my father's business? Because the business that I'm about tells a lot about the hive that I'm from. Because what I do and the actions that I take throughout my day and what I think determines what I'm here for. 
Matthew 6.33 is, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Am I about 24-7, as long as God gives me breath, about seeking the kingdom of God? Or do I want to take little breaks? Do I want to say, well, you know, that's fine and that's well, but I'm just going to... I just can't do this. No, God gives us strength. God gives us the ability to go on and to be about our Father's business. You only have one Father. It's either Satan like the Pharisees. Pharisees' Father was Satan. Or it is Jesus Christ. Do I work in unity? Am I willing to make a sacrifice for the kingdom? Unfortunately, a lot of us myself included, I'm speaking for myself, probably really do not know what it is about to make a sacrifice for the kingdom. I might be a little bit uncomfortable at times. I might do things that I don't want to do. But can I really call it a sacrifice by living in the United States and being blessed the way that we are and then some little thing comes along that I don't really like and I complain about it? As a challenge this evening, bees store up honey in the summer. Remember, they only live about six weeks. They are storing up honey for winter that they will never consume. The bees that are born in, in August, September live throughout the winter and then die in the springtime. So those bees are storing up honey that they will not consume. They are looking out for the health of the hive. They are looking out, shall we say, for the brotherhood. Can I do that? Can I look out for the health of the brotherhood? You know, this this isn't about me. Yes, I will someday have to answer to God for me, but this is actually this life that I am living here is about furthering the kingdom of God. And it's about sending treasure on ahead. And it's about storing up things, like we talked about this morning, the wood. Am I willing to be and to leave a legacy for those that are coming behind me? Am I willing to give everything for the local branch of the Bride of Christ, which is the church? Am I willing to work together with anyone that God has put in contact with me? Or do I say, you know, that person there, I just I can't get along with that person. Well, it's probably not that person that has a problem. It's probably ourselves. You know, if insects fulfill their designed purpose to glorify God, what excuse do I have? What excuse will I have when I stand before the king? God will say, I equipped you. I put you by living water. I gave you everything you needed. Will he say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? We can hope so. We can make sure that he does by living according to his word. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, this evening we just come before you once again, Lord. We thank you that you have given us this lively hope, Lord. We thank you that you have given us instruction, you have given us examples, Lord, and that you have given us your love and your indwelling Spirit, Lord, we pray that you might just be with the service here this evening, especially just be with Brother Eric as he ministers to us. Lord, just help him to speak, help him to have clarity of thought, help him to be able to just give to us whatever you have laid on his heart. Lord, and again, we want to lift up Delmers and the family and Johns and Wendells and the rest that are involved there to you, Lord. Just wrap your arms around them, give them grace, Lord. We know that you are sovereign, but we also know that Times like these bring sorrow, Lord, and help us to be able to lift them up continually to you as they go through this time. Help the details as they're arranged, whatever the travel might be, that you could just intervene and that you could just go with them. Just bless us all here this evening also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, if Christ had not died upon that tree, we would just be meeting as a social group. We could be meeting as a self-help group with the issues that we have in life, but we would not be able to change anything beyond what this life would afford us. 
But because he died on that tree, because Jesus Christ died for my sins and for the sins of the world, we can live an overcoming life here, and we can experience eternity with him. So this meeting here is not just a social club. It is not just to build up steam and head home and then blow it off. Yes, it's encouraging, and we need to build up, I shouldn't say steam, I don't think, but we need to build up courage and to be impressed to get the message of the gospel across to the great unwashed that are out there. This morning I'd like to read several verses out of Job chapter 12, verse 7 to 10, and then look at an interesting creature that God has made, a creature that I knew very little about until I started reading about it. Job chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Now it goes to describe that God made everything. And that last verse there says, In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. I know I'm being repetitive, but God made everything. He controls everything. We owe everything to God. And most of nature was created without a choice. They do what God created them to do. We have a choice. And therefore, we can honor God by choosing to fulfill our design purpose, or we can go against God's plan and bring dishonor to God, and we're in the camp of Satan. We're either serving one or the other. This morning I'd like to talk a little bit about the cuttlefish. And I'm contrary to what its name is. You probably wouldn't want to cuddle with it. Although it was sort of interesting, the, some of the divers that dive in Australia where the giant cuttlefish lives, at certain times of the year it will actually swim up to divers and want to be rubbed uh, and patted, um, which would be interesting, although I, I don't know that I'd want to swim in the ocean even with scuba gear. If you've ever had a parakeet or a cockatiel and you've bought a little cuddle bone, which is an oval-shaped thin bone, and put it in the cage, I don't know how many of you have experienced that, but this is the creature that that cuddle bone comes from. The creature is, they can, they're from the squid and octopus family. They have eight limbs, and they swim by rippling the edges of their body. And they can squirt ink, just like an, an octopus or a, or a squid can. Their body itself can grow up to about 20 inches long, and they can weigh up to 23 pounds. That's including the tentacles and, and the rest of it. They're not that large of a, of a creature. <clears throat> the interesting thing about the cuttlefish is not necessarily how it's built or, or how it's made up of, but that it can change colors. It's like a chameleon of the sea except it's a super chameleon. This isn't just your normal creature that can change colors. It doesn't go out and get a sunburn and turn bright red like I do. It can change colors in under a second. And it can change all types of colors. It can go red, blue. It, it, can, it can make patterns. It can do strobe effect. It's truly amazing. God made this creature... One of the, the more interesting things that I found is when these creatures at certain times of the year when they go through their mating rituals, some of the males that cannot compete with the larger males can display on one half of their body that is turned towards a male cuttlefish, they will display the side of a female cuttlefish. But if the female is on the other side, they will then display their male side on the left side of their body so it invites less competition. So they can split right down the middle. Isn't that amazing that just happened? <clears throat> they have three hearts. It pumps a green, bluish blood because their blood doesn't have iron in it. It has copper in it. And that transports less oxygen than iron does, and so they have more hearts to pump more blood. God made distinct creations for distinct things. So, 
the 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 other things that are amazing about it, it, it can it can match its background. There can be two cuttlefish only separated by a couple feet and have slightly different textured bottoms or colored bottoms, and they will match those exactly or almost exactly. They will have different patterns. They won't have the same pattern because they are conforming to what is around them. And now, furthermore, a cuttlefish is colorblind. Digest that. And they can change colors and match their background in near total darkness. <laughs> I don't understand that. But I don't have to. God made them that way. The other thing that totally sort of messes with my mind is not only do they match the color of the background that they are at, but they will match the texture. Yes, you heard that right. Their skin will have bumps or protrusions or blades on it and will bulge out and conform to texture of the background that they're trying to match. And they've done tests in tanks where they've gone and they put horizontal stripes on the tank. And if they do that, the cuttlefish will lay horizontally. They'll stretch out horizontally. And if they put upright stripes in, they will raise an arm to match that stripe. They're trying to blend in so that predators will not eat them. That's a pretty good driving force, I guess, to conform to your background so that you won't be eaten. Even when they're swimming in seaweed, they will conform to the color of the seaweed. They will match the motion and the swaying of the current with their arms and their tentacles so that they blend in. In fact, their camouflage is so good that the military has studied them, and I believe still is, trying to understand their secrets and trying to make camouflage that would conform to the background, whatever the person or the implement is in. So you probably know where I'm going with this. Don't be a cuttlefish for more reasons than one. Don't try to blend in. Don't try to conform. Don't try to be and become the world that you're living in. Very familiar verses, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we need to be not more like our surroundings. We don't have to become more like the people that we're trying to win and more like our surroundings in order to be appealing. We need to become more Christ-like. Don't be a cuttlefish. James 4, verse 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity against God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. It's pretty plain. But self and, and, and humanism left to itself will always gravitate to the lowest common denominator. We will always be pulled back and try to match what we shouldn't. And we will conform to something. Some people say, well, no, you know, it used to be pretty cool, I guess, back in the 90s, 80s, where there was no fear bumper stickers. It was basically saying that I'm not conforming to a standard. Well, yes, you were. You were conforming to that standard. We are conforming to something. We will identify with something. We will become like something. Is our choice. What we focus on and what we become. Have you ever seen people that have said, I will not be like, and oftentimes they will name a parent. I'm not going to be like that person. And they are so focused on that, they become almost a carbon copy of that person. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now people of God, which have obtained mercy, but now, or have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So because of this mercy that was given to us, we are now a people. We are taken in. We are as much children of God as the children of Israel were. 
We are a chosen people, and so we need to conform to God's standard. We don't have to blend in to anything besides the Bible. We need to become more Christ-like, more like His Word, not like our surroundings. Am I willing to be radically different in the environment that I am in? You know, it's not easy at times to be different and to stand out and to take a stand. But that's what we are called to do. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are called to be different. Not for the sake of being different. Not just for the sake of standing out and and creating a scene or, or, or being something that is different from society, but because we are conforming to God's standard and God's standard does not change. It stays the same. We don't have to be the cuttlefish where we have to look and say, well, what, what, what's God demanding me today? What, what's God asking me today? What's God requesting me today? What? Yes, we have the will of God that we need to work through, but we know that it remains the same. We don't have to wonder. So what should I be like then if I shouldn't be a cuttlefish? I'm not saying you should be like necessarily any animal, but I would like to take a couple examples of the eagle. You know, eagles soar to tremendous height. They're not the highest flying bird. I think some kind of uh, vulture has been spotted at 36 or 37,000 feet, actually been sucked into jet engines at that height. Eagles will fly over 10,000 feet, and they can survey a tremendous amount of area. You know, we need to rise above the world that is around us. We cannot stay at ground level because we will not see the forest because of the trees. We need to rise above, and only through Christ and only through God can we do that. We need to set our sights on heavenly things. If we become like the background that we are working in, our sights are set too low. We are looking around us at ground level and taking our marching orders from what is around us and not what God's Word requires of us. Furthermore, as leaders, we must be able to see out. We must be able to look out and see what is coming and see and warn people. But we can only do that by rising above what is around us. An eagle can see a rabbit approximately two miles away. It said if we had the eyes of an eagle, we could stand on top of a ten-story building and watch ants doing their thing walking around. It's pretty good eyesight. Do I have spiritual eyesight that is like that? God can give it to us. Zechariah 4, verse 6, And then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We don't take our marching orders from anything but God's spirit and God's word. This isn't through our power. This isn't about socially getting together and getting all excited about something and then taking that until we wear off. We will wear off. We're human. But this is by God's power living inside of us. We're not in this by ourselves. You know, eagles often soar on thermals. And this morning I like to have you think about a thermal is a rising column of hot air. It is hot air rises. And so there's a column of air that rises and the eagles fly into it and they will fly in circles to stay in it the, and they will rise. The Spirit of God is, is like, I believe, in our lives like a thermal. We cannot see a thermal. You can't go out and you might be able to see things that are rising. If you see in the distance, you might see something rising in a thermal. But you can't see the thermal. But you experience the Spirit lifting you up. And a lot of times the Spirit of God, I think, is identified very accurately by looking back into our lives. We see things that have happened and we say, Whoa, I can plainly see the Spirit of God at work. But at the time, it's not necessarily that we identify that Yes, this is the Spirit of God working in me. But we need to rise up. We need to be buoyed up by the Spirit of God. Not that we pull our own selves up, but that we let the Spirit of God take us up and we look for God's direction in our lives. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait. On the Lord. That's hard for me. I don't have much patience a lot of times. I want it now. But we need to wait on the Lord, and His Spirit is faithful. He will give us direction where we need to go. You know, we need to be separate from the world. I guess my, my challenge 
And this last devotional for us all is that we don't try to blend in. That we don't try to hide like the cuttlefish. We don't try to conform to some background that we are in. But that we are like Christ. That we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And God has created each one of us. Each living soul. Each human has a never-dying soul. And He has created each one of us for a purpose. First of all, is to glorify Him. And then we have individual purposes too. God has supplied that power. It's up to me if I want to connect to it or not. Don't be a cuttlefish.